would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking today at Revelation chapter 6. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, I know that some of you are outline people, sermon outline people. Some of you are not, which is absolutely fine, but some of you are. And so I just want to, if you are a sermon outline person, uh, the outline as it is every week is uh, on page, uh, around page 8. It's on page 8 this week. just want to make note of one thing in particular. Uh, I noticed that the, uh, the kind of the last thing we're going to talk about today slipped off the bottom of the page. And so it looks like when we get to the application of Revelation 6 today, that all we're going to do is talk about a warning for those who aren't in a relationship with Jesus. But actually, we're going to also talk about the hope and the encouragement we have for those who are in a relationship with Jesus. So that'll be number two down there at the bottom of your outline if you're following along in your outline. I had somebody ask me this past week if I had uh, brought in, <clears throat> excuse me, brought in some guest speakers the last two weeks because I didn't want to have to get into Revelation chapter 6. I told him I hadn't thought about that, but it's a good, interesting idea, and I had to think about maybe lining up a third one so that we wouldn't have to uh, jump into it quite yet. But here we are in Revelation chapter 6 in a challenging, difficult passage, and yet I hope that we will leave filled with great hope and great encouragement. Listen as I read to you from Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were, so, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig Fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, 
and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb of God. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Let's pray together. Our Father, our great God and King, we come to you as we do each week and we ask for you to help us to understand your word. I pray, Father, that for those that need to hear the warning of Revelation 6, that you would open their hearts and open their ears, that through the work of your Spirit, that warning would ring true of them today. And I pray, Father, for those who have a relationship with the Lord that are here this morning, that you would fill us with hope and peace and encouragement and spur us on to press on in the midst of the challenges, the trials, the tribulations of this life. We ask that you would do this, Father, for your glory and for the good of your people. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Growing up, one of the uh, genres of TV shows that I liked to watch were the superhero TV shows. Now, back then, uh, a lot of them were uh, uh, were almost like um, uh, comics and, and uh, that kind of uh, kind of a thing on the television. But there were actually actual shows uh, with actors that were in these uh, shows about the superheroes as well. Uh, there was Superman, there was Spider Man, Batman, and Robin. And, and in particular, when I was a, a young boy growing up in the early 1970s, uh, the Batman and Robin television show from the late 1960s was still showing reruns. And it was a favorite TV show of, of mine. It was a wonderful show. It had, it had kind of a, a light air about it. The music was kind of fun and uplifting. And the villains in the Batman and Robin TV show were people like the Riddler and the Catwoman. Uh, there was a villain named Two-Face and a villain named Penguin and a villain named Mr. Freeze. And probably the one that was best known was the Joker. These villains in the TV show were almost like uh, comedic villains that you were supposed to laugh at and uh, look at their bumbling around and not even being able to be good villains. And, and every week in this weekly TV show that, uh, that aired, Batman and Robin always saved the day. They always solved the problem. The villain was always defeated. Good one and evil would be defeated and lost. Things have really changed. This past week on Monday, I went to go see a movie. I went to go see the movie that's called The Joker. And it is a movie that is already setting records at the box office. It's breaking records for the largest opening for the month of October. I want to be clear, this is not a kid's movie. It is not a movie for young people. I can't even necessarily recommend that you go to see it. Perhaps maybe some of you could, but I would suggest that probably most of us shouldn't. Although the acting uh, by the character, by the actor who plays the character of Joker, is some of the most incredible acting that I have seen in, any, in a long time, it is one of the darkest, 
most depressing, stark depictions of depravity that I've seen in a movie and as long as I can remember. It's hard to watch. As far as I can tell, there's almost no redemptive element in this movie. In fact, it even, in a sense, glorifies evil and glorifies depravity. It's the story of how the Joker villain became the Joker. It's a story, it's not a superhero movie with... Uh, characters that have supernatural powers. In fact, it's just about a, a, a single ordinary man who spirals down and down and down and whose life unravels. It's about the man Arthur Fleck, who was a failed comedian and clown that went to parties and uh, kids' birthday parties and whatnot as a clown to try to make them uh, laugh and have fun. But the movie focuses on Arthur Fleck and and indeed the rest of the culture that deals with mental illness and abuse as a child and abuse as an adult, bullying, addiction, isolation, violence, poverty, murder, terror, and death. The movie depicts Arthur Fleck's spiraling down and down and down and down until he eventually is transformed and emerges as the villain Joker. And the final scenes of the movie show a world that is in chaos and evil triumphs over good. I think it's always a temptation for God's people to look at what's happening in our world, to look at what's happening in our own lives and feel like people leave the Joker movie feeling like. We see and we hear and we even feel wars and rumors of wars and famine and disease and injustices and brokenness and depravity and sin. And it looks and it feels to us like evil is triumphing over good. Not just in a global sense as we turn on the national news but even personally in our own lives as we struggle to make sense of what is happening in our own lives and in this world. I think that's been a temptation for God's people since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we looked earlier in our study of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 and we saw these seven churches that were experiencing all kinds of evil and difficulty and persecution. And Jesus told them that they were to expect it. And that it would come again and again. And throughout history from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the evidence of these things. Of evil, of brokenness, of sin. And this book, the book of Revelation, was written to God's people to help us. To help us to understand and to not lose hope in the midst of what we experience. To remember God's peace. This book is not written to us as some kind of puzzle that we're somehow supposed to put all the pieces together and try to figure it out. This book, this letter was written to us like a child's storybook to encourage us to press on in our faith in the midst of a difficult and life filled of trials. And so today, what I want us to see here from Revelation chapter 6 is the picture of what has been happening and is happening 
a picture of what will happen in the future, and then we'll talk a little bit about the warning and the comfort that comes from Revelation 6. It's been a few weeks since we've been looking at Revelation. Let me just remind us of some of the context. The, the book of Revelation was not meant to be a blueprint to try to help us understand every single world event uh, and, and how it's to be interpreted. It, it's meant to give us the big picture of God's ultimate victory over evil and sin and death. It is meant to give us the overarching truth of God's sovereignty and success over evil. It's a book that's divided into seven different cycles or visions, seven different pictures of the history of the world. And we're in the midst of the second cycle. And here we see the opening of these seven seals showing God's purposes and plan for the last days. That is the time between Jesus came the first time and Jesus comes the second time. Coming up, we'll see different cycles. We'll see seven trumpets and we'll see seven bowls, each describing the same period of time. And one commentator called it different camera angles of the same event. Today in our context here immediately in what we're looking at, this second vision. A few weeks ago, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5, and we saw this, this picture from God's perspective of the throne room of heaven and the lamb who looked as if he had been slain, and yet he was alive and well, ruling and reigning. And there's a scroll that the one who sits on the throne was holding and John despairs because he looks around and he does, doesn't see anybody who is able to open the scroll of God's plan for all of humanity. But then we read in chapter 5 that there was one who was worthy. The Lamb of God was worthy to take the scroll and to open it. And we read in chapter 5 that as the Lamb took the scroll, all of heaven and creation began to worship Him. That's the backdrop for what we have here. Because now we're reading about the seals on that scroll. That as they're opened, now we get a picture of what's happening on earth and heaven. As the seals are opened and God's plan goes into effect. What I want you to reflect on today as we look into this passage is that the Jesus of our call to worship this morning from Matthew 11. Who calls his people who are weary and heavy laden and gives us rest. The one who is gentle, the one uh, who is uh, full of a compassionate heart is the same Jesus that's described here in Revelation 6 as the Lamb of Wrath. For some, this passage is meant to be a great comfort and encouragement and hope and peace. And for others, it's meant to be a serious warning, a call to repentance, a call to put trust and hope in the Lamb of God. So let's look and see what we get here in Revelation chapter 6. The first thing that we get is this picture of what was or what has been and what is. We see that in the first 11 verses. We're not supposed to get caught up in all kind of an overemphasis of all the details, trying to parse out every specific aspect. We're supposed to see the big picture. The picture of what has been going on in history and what is going on even now the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And the picture that we get first of what was and is, is what's happening on the earth. That's what's happening in these first eight verses. We have these first four seals that are open. The first one is in verses one and two. 
And as the seal is opened on the scroll, we see the first seal. What comes forth is a white horse and a rider. Now, now there's some disagreement about who uh, the identity of this first rider is. Because he's described as being a, on a white horse and because he's listed as being uh, given a crown, there are some that actually believe that this is Jesus who is riding out uh, to conquer with the gospel. I won't get into all the details right now, but I don't think that's actually what this rider is supposed to represent. It doesn't fit the context of these four horsemen who seem to be all on the same team and whose purpose is not salvation, but tribulation. This is a picture of a warlike conqueror being sent out into the earth, given power at different times in the history of the world. We can think about the various Caesars that wrecked havoc for God's people in the first century. We can think of other leaders, other people that were raised up at various times in history. The Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Hitler. People that were called out and, and went out to conquer and to be conquerors. That's what this first horse or rider is representing. These, these world leaders that came out and conquered and sought to, to wreak havoc. The second seal is opened in verses 3 and 4. And there we see a, a red horse and its rider come out. In fact, we're told that it's a bright red horse in color. It's meant to give us a picture of bloodshed, the flowing of blood. And notice what we're told, that they are permitted to take peace away from the earth, to bring about war, people killing one another, slaying one another with the sword. It's a picture of civil war and bloodshed happening around the world. And think about how much war and bloodshed there has been in the last 20 centuries. How much took place even just in the first century. How much, even in the 20th century, who by some estimations, there have been more deaths by war and atrocities than all of the rest of human history combined in the 20th century. World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the War on Terror, the Holocaust, acts of genocide in Turkey and Africa and the Baltic states. We see this. This is not something that's purely down the road. This is something that we have been experiencing even in our own lifetime. And it's not just war. It's also war on the womb. As we think about the taking of human life through abortion. 61.6 million abortions in the United States since 1973. 40 to 50 million children lost, killed, Per year globally. We see this. We have experienced this picture of the peace being taken away from the world of of war and people slaying one another. Verses 5 and 6, the third seal is opened and we read that a black horse and its rider come forward. And this black horse and its rider are symbolic of famine, particularly famine that impacts the poor. The measurements and the money that are mentioned here in verses 5 and 6 are to give us an indication that there is severe inflation taking place. That people are not able to buy the necessities of food. Even in chapters 2 and 3, as Jesus was preparing the churches for what they were experiencing, what they were going to experience, He told them that there would be periods of economic crisis, some because of their faith in Christ. And we've seen that as well throughout the 
throughout the decades and throughout the, 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 the years since Jesus' first coming, we've seen famine and poverty around the world. The fourth seal is opened in verses 7 and 8. And from when the fourth seal is opened, we read that a pale horse and rider come forth. Uh, the word pale there literally means pale, sickly green color. It's, it has the sense of decay or decomposition. It's a picture of disease and pestilence that results in death. And we've seen that even in our own lifetime and even before. We've seen things like the Black Plague and AIDS, the Ebola virus and cancer. It's likely that verse 8 at the end is a summary statement of these four horses, that they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, before we move on to see not only uh, what has been and what is on the earth, to see also what was happening in, in heaven, I want you to know, note that there is actually a very interesting connection here with the Old Testament. These four horsemen and what they represent actually show up specifically in the Old Testament prophets. And in particular, in two places, in Zechariah chapter 6, we see these horsemen, these same horsemen with the same uh, things that they represent, being sent out and as judgments, not on those who are in relationship with the Lord, but those who are rebelling against the Lord. But then in Ezekiel 14, another prophet, we see these same horsemen and what they represent being sent out to God's people. As a means to purify them, as a means to point them to God and the need for holiness in the life of God's people. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But for now, what we have here is a picture of what's taking place between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus as both judgment and purification. Those first eight verses are what's taking place, what has taken place, what is taking place on the earth. In verses 9 through 11, we get a picture of what's taking place in heaven. In verse 9, we read that when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? When the fifth seal is opened, the scene changes from what has been happening and what is happening on the earth to what has been happening and is happening in heaven itself. And who do we see that is there in verse 9? It is the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. We get this picture of Christians that have been martyred for their faith in Christ. They have, they've been killed because of their witness for Christ. And what are they doing? We see in verse 10, they're crying out with a loud voice, crying out to the Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These martyred saints are crying out, not for their own revenge, for what's happened to them personally, but for the injustices that are taking place on the earth, that the Lord would bring vindication of his justice, that God would bring judgment on the wickedness and the evil of the earth, and that his justice would prevail. And the other the couple of things that are interesting about these people is notice where they are at the beginning of verse 9. He sees them under the altar. 
in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, there were two altars. One was in the courtyard and one was in the holy place. And these altars were used for two different purposes. One was the altar on which the animals were sacrificed to give the people of God a picture of the need of a sacrificial atonement for their sin, pointing them forward to Christ. And the second altar was an altar where the prayers of the saints would rise up to God and he would answer, he would hear and answer their prayers. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that those Old Testament altars were earthly copies or shadows of what's true in heaven. And so here in Revelation 6, this picture of what's taking place in heaven, we see the saints in heaven who are safe and secure symbolically under the altar of atonement, under the altar of the answered prayers to the Lord God Almighty. And notice we also get this picture of their condition in verse 11. The beginning of verse 11, we're told that they're each given a white robe. If you know anything else about Revelation or even the other parts of the scripture, you know this idea of of white and particularly a white robe is to signify righteousness and purity. And notice this robe is given to the saints of God. It's a picture of being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, with his righteousness, with his perfect purity. And not only are they clothed with these white robes in the beginning of verse 11, but notice also at the, at the begin, at the, excuse me, the second part of verse 11, that they're told to rest a little longer. Rest, the word there means refreshed. They're being told that as they are wrapped with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that they can rest from their labors. They can rest in Christ's finished work on their behalf. This is, this is the picture of what was and what is happening from the time of the first coming until the second coming on the earth and in the heaven, heavens above. But notice, we also get a picture of what will be, what's coming. We see that in verses 12 and following. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What is this except for a picture of what is coming It's a picture of the future, specifically in the sixth seal is open. John and God's people get this picture of what will happen when Jesus arrives at the second coming, the final day of judgment. Jesus himself had spoken about it in Matthew chapter 24. And again, we're not meant to overly, literally translate every aspect of this as if the stars are going to fall and and the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. The point of what we are to to be taking away from this is that there's a description here, first of all, of the judgment and dissolution of creation. That's what we get in verses 12 through 14. But we also get a description of the judgment that comes on those who are not in a relationship 
with the Lord. That's what we read about in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? It's a description of the judgment of God coming on those who are not in a relationship with the Lord. Notice there are seven different categories of people mentioned here in verse 15. We've talked about how the number seven is symbolic in Revelation for complete. And what we're being told here is that when the Lord comes in His second coming, He is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what position or power or vocation or wealth or status is. The only thing that matters is whether we are in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty or not. And if not, judgment comes and there's no escape. Notice they tried to escape. Look at what we read here in the last couple of verses about how they tried to respond They attempted to hide and get away from the presence of this almighty God. It's not the first time that we've seen people try to hide from the presence of God. Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sinned, became aware of their nakedness. And the Lord God Almighty sought them out coming into the garden. And what did they do? They tried to hide. That's what people do when they come face to face with the presence of God of the Almighty God, of the Lamb of God. And notice, they would rather die. They call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. They would rather die than suffer the justice and the wrath of a holy God. The last words of chapter 6 are meant to be very poignant. Who can stand? Who can stand in that great and dreadful day? But as we ask those questions, ask, ask those, as we say those words, as we ask that question, who can stand it? It helps us to start thinking about what difference Revelation chapter 6 makes for us. It, it takes us back to the, to the question, the comment that I made at the beginning of the sermon, even at the beginning of our worship service. The, the same Jesus of Matthew chapter 11, the one who calls us into his presence, the one who says that he is gentle and lowly in heart, the one who gives us rest, is the same Jesus of Revelation 6 who's described as the Lamb of Wrath. So is this passage meant to bring us comfort or warning? And of course the answer is it depends on who you are. There is a serious warning here today for those who are not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a warning for all those who hear the gospel but don't put their hope and trust in Jesus. Who turn away from having a relationship with the Lord. Who live in rebellion and refuse to give allegiance to King Jesus. But even in the midst of that warning, I want you to know the good news. If you're here this morning... And you are not in a relationship with the Lord. The good news is that there is still time. That in God's mercy and grace, He has given you time to hear the gospel and to repent and to return to Him. But a day is coming when that will no longer be possible. The day that's described here in these verses. And for those who on that day are not in a relationship with the Lord... He gives us a picture of what it's going to be like. And we say, who could stand 
in the midst of that. I heard a story from a pastor friend of mine recently. He was telling the story of what was taking place in our country in the spring of 1980. Geologists in our country were beginning to become very concerned because it looked more and more like there were significant warning signs that Mount St. Helens in Washington State was going to erupt and explode. And as we got into May, it began to look like this explosion was going to be massive, devastating, very serious. About five miles north of the mountain was a small little lodge on a lake called Spirit Lake. And the caretaker of that lodge was a man by the name of Harry Truman, not the president, a different Truman. He had heard the warnings being sent out via radio and television. As the police arrived to begin evacuating the area, Truman refused to leave. News stations showed up and began to give news reports, and they even interviewed Truman at one point, and he laughed away the danger (laughs) until May 18th. May 18th, 1980, at 8.31 a.m., Mount St. Helens erupted, exploded. It's the deadliest and most economically destructive volcanic event in the history of the United States. Fifty-seven people were killed. The concussion from the explosion crashed down the mountain, flattening 250 homes and 47 bridges, 15 miles of railways, and 185 miles of the highway was destroyed. The summit of the mountain was reduced by 1,300 feet. And there was a one-mile-wide horseshoe-shaped crater at the top. After the event, there was no sign of Harry Truman or the lodge. He died in the midst of the destruction that he so foolishly denied could take place and that he so easily could have escaped. The day of judgment that we're reading about in Revelation 6 is much, much worse for those who are not in relationship with the Lord. And so I'll just ask you this morning, where are you? If you're here this morning and you know... You know that you're not in a relationship with the Lord. You're not resting and trusting in Christ alone for His righteousness to be wrapped around you, to rest in His completed and finished work on the cross. Then the message here today is a warning. And I would plead with you, I would urge you to put your faith in the Lord God Almighty. To let today be the day of salvation, the day of the freedom that you have in Christ. Who can stand? I think there's a different answer for that when we talk about those who are in a relationship with the Lord. For those who are in a relationship with the Lord this morning, rather than a warning in this passage, this passage is meant to be a, 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 a passage of hope and peace and encouragement. For those who are in a relationship with the Lord, this, this, message, this passage is meant to, to point us to the greatest encouragement that we have. Several things that show us here in this passage. The first is, did you notice that the Lamb is the one that's in control? 
Who is the one that opened the seals? And as if to drive it into our hearts and our minds in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 12, we're told that the Lamb is the one that opens the seals. He is the only one who is worthy. He is the only one who is able to open and to affect the plan of God. He is the one who is in control. Each of the riders, each of the horses are summoned and they go forth only at Christ's command. To be clear, the Lord is not the author of evil, but he is sovereign over it and he limits it. Even in this passage, we see the limit of evil because of the goodness and grace of the almighty God. The great. Revelation scholar Greg Beale said it this way, Christ has made the world forces of evil his agents to execute his purposes of sanctification and judgment for the furtherance of his kingdom. Our God is not impotent, but omnipotent. He is omnipotent over evil. He hates evil and sin and he brings it to a completion and to an end. As we read in chapter 1, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. Even when we can't figure out and understand what is happening in our lives and in our world, we have hope and we have peace and we have comfort because we know that Jesus, the Lamb, is in control. We see the connection between what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5 and the sovereign power and authority of the Lamb of God in Revelation 6 where the plan of God begins to be affected. We know that the Lord is at work. And as Paul tells us in Romans, He's working all things for His glory but also for the good of His people. That's why we have hope. That's why we have peace in the midst of living in this difficult place with the trials and tribulations. It's because we know that the Lamb is in control. But also here in this passage, we see that there is a promise. There is a picture of God's people being safe. This picture of, of, of God's people going immediately to be with the Lord when they die. Of, of going to be face to face with the Lord God Almighty, even when they suffer martyrdom. It reminds us of our own Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, where we read the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. We get this symbolic image of God's people being under the altar, even in heaven itself, safe and secure under the protection of the Lord. No matter what we experience in this life, we have the promise and we have the certainty that we are safe and secure. The third thing and the last thing that should fill us with hope and peace and encouragement from this passage today, if we are in a relationship with the Lord, is that God's people are both robed and resting. Did you see what he says in verse 11? Again, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. 
What an incredible source of hope and encouragement. This is a picture of the gospel. Perhaps the greatest image that we're given here. It reminds us of the glorious truth of God's grace. That in Christ we are reckoned righteous and pure. We are wrapped with the righteousness of the Lamb of God of our Savior. And in Christ we are able to rest Truly and spiritually from all of our efforts to earn God's love and acceptance and forgiveness because we have it, we are in Christ. And even though this is a picture of saints after they have died in heaven, it's still true of us now, although we can't fully understand it or grasp it or even maybe see it in this life all of the time. We are told that even at this very moment, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and we have rest from our labors as we rest in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that that grips our hearts in our minds, the more that we'll be empowered to press on in this life of trials and tribulations. But it also ought to do something else. And I'll finish with this. Two different places in Paul's writings. The first one in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, what effect should the gospel have on us as God's people? For those who are in a relationship as, with the Lord, as we, as we contemplate the fact that we are robed and resting in Christ, what effect should that have in our lives? To the Romans, he said, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As we think about the gospel and our status of being in, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ and we are safe and secure under the altar in heaven itself, it should move us to be ready to confess our sins, to acknowledge how we don't live the way we're supposed to, and to see ourselves come more and more under the conformity of God's word. And that's kind of what Paul got at in another place in his letter to Titus. There we read in Titus chapter 2, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, the gospel, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in this present age. If you are here this morning and you are in a relationship with the Lord, the gospel of God's grace is given to you to teach you how to put Him first in all of your life, to put off ungodliness and to live upright lives for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much again for your word and we thank you that the same spirit who caused John to be able to write these things down is even in our lives at this very moment here in this place in this very moment. And we pray that you would help us to understand your word. Definitely hard things for us today, but I pray, Father, that if there are those here today who are not in a relationship with you, you would not allow them to leave today until they have confessed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ having safety from that great day of judgment. And for those, Father, whose relationship is with the Lord Jesus himself, I pray you would fill us with all hope and peace and encouragement. And do that again even as we come now to this table, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.